Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. In the business of publishing, you're doing two things at once all the time, right? You're reflecting your society, but you're also trying to push conversations forward in your society. That's the purpose of creating culture, because otherwise, what the hell else are you doing? Go make car tires. You're going to make more money. That's cookbook authority Francis Lamb, and he's joining us to talk about the brilliant editor, Judith Jones. We have Judith and her remarkable instincts to thank for both mastering the art of French cooking and the diary of Anne Frank, two vastly different books, but each seismic in their influence. How Judith did this, we will discuss in just a little bit. But first, welcome to Dishing on Julia the official companion podcast of Julia, the HBO Max original series inspired by the life of Julia Child. I'm your host, Carrie Diamond, and each week I recap a new episode of Julia and chat with special guests about the making of the show and the cultural impact of our culinary icon. Before we talk to Francis, we'll check in with Julia cast members Fiona Glascott, who plays Judith Jones, and, are you ready for this, the one and only Judith Light, who plays the imperious publisher, Blanche Knopf. Yes, we've got two Judiths, one Julia, and lots to discuss. So let's dish on the latest episode, the Breads episode. I thought she was doing donuts. Sorry to disappoint, there is no donut content ahead. The episode opens with Julia on the set of The French Chef, making poulet au porto, a rich dish that consists of roast chicken covered with cognac, set on fire, We know Julia loves that, then smothered with a creamy mushroom and port wine sauce. As divine as it sounds, Julia is tired of chicken. And producer Russ Morash? Well, he's just tired. Turns out, he's a new dad. Goo-goo-ga-ga for baby? What was I talking about? Russ's sleep deprivation is making him a little loopy. And the Poulet O Porto episode everyone thought was in the can? It has to be scrapped because of a wrinkle in the film, which means Julia's scheduled time off is not happening. She's not happy because she was going to use the time to recipe test for her next cookbook. I marked it in very bold letters in my diary. Week off. Back home, Julia spars over the phone with her cookbook partner slash nemesis, Simka Beck. Well, I mean, it's a wonderful start to the mountain of work we still need to do. Meaning? Bread! No, 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 Julia, no. No, bread, no. No, hear me out. The French don't make bread. Well, they don't make bread at home. That's what boulangeries are for. But Julia does not care. She longs for the crusty bread she enjoyed in France. Julia was known to rail against spongy American white bread, like Wonder Bread, which she considered neither wondrous nor bread. Anyway, because she has to reshoot the French Chef episode, she enlists Paul to recipe test with her editor, Judith Jones. Now Judith is aggravated, having given up her vacation time to spend what she thought would be quality time with Julia. Paul and Julia get ready for bed, and it might be worth re-watching the scene just to appreciate Paul and Julia's strong pajama game. Julia reveals that her co-author Simka has hurled the ultimate insult at her. Simka accused me of not being French enough. 
Simka wouldn't exist outside of her own ego if it weren't for you. Ooh la la, fighting words. The next morning, Judith is woken up by the sound of Paul doing calisthenics. Before my coffee? No. If you listen carefully, that sounds like the accent of someone born in New York City, which Judith was, and me too. But actor Fiona Glascott, who plays Judith, was born and raised in Ireland. You'll hear her real voice very soon. Julia arrives on set and, in a bid to get back at Simca, announces this episode's recipe is sweetbreads. Hmm, the crew is not into this at all. No one will make this dish. Maybe not, but maybe one person will. You will have a script by tomorrow. Didn't you just tell me to take charge? You are in charge. In charge of Julia's vision. And Julia's vision has led her to sweetbreads. Do you know what sweetbreads are? No. Like a Danish, right? Not exactly. Sweetbreads, or riz de veau, according to Mastering the Art of French Cooking, are the thymus gland of a calf. Julia was a big fan, as evidenced by the six different sweetbread recipes in the book. I can attest sweetbreads definitely taste better than they sound. Back in the Cambridge kitchen, Paul and Judith start the bread experiments. Dozens of misshapen baguettes litter the table. Back at WGBH, the crew remains ambivalent about sweetbreads. Russ pitches a weekly show on civil rights, and Alice tries to fire Avis. Paul and Judith finally succeed in turning out a perfect baguette. In real life, it would take Paul and Julia almost a year and a reported 284 pounds of flour to get the perfect recipe. And the asbestos tile that Paul used? That was a real thing. We don't use those today. To celebrate their success, Julia, Judith, and Paul have dinner at Joyce Chen's Chinese restaurant in Cambridge. Joyce, interestingly, self-published a cookbook in 1962. And in 1967, Joyce even filmed 26 episodes of her own cooking show on the very same set as the French chef. The trio arrives home and Julia receives a call from her sister that their father has passed away. The next day, Julia dedicates the Sweetbreads episode to her father. Later, WGBH boss Hunter summons Julia to his office. He's not a fan of Sweetbreads, but what he really wants to talk about is a second season. Julia is a little wiser this time round and a little more popular and negotiates to her advantage. Will Hunter's wife be the only person to make Julia Sweetbreads? Will Judith get to take a real vacation? And will Simka finally relax? C'est impossible. We'll find out more next week. Now, let's chat with our first two guests, actor Fiona Glascott, who plays the New York-born Judith Jones, and Judith Light, who plays Blanche Knopf, and who so many of us know and love from so many shows. Judith joins us from L.A., Fiona is in London, and I am in Manhattan, and we've been brought together by the miracle of Julia Child. And Zoom. Let's welcome them to Dishing on Julia. Judith Light, Fiona Glascott, welcome to Dishing on Julia. Judith, let's jump right in with you. I'd love to know, when did you first learn about Julia Child? When I was a child. (laughs) I mean, I remember seeing her program on, on PBS. So it's been forever. I mean, she was always part of my world, always part of everything that I knew about. And my mother was a great cook. My grandmother was a great cook. So anything that had to do with cooking was of interest to everybody. And that's how I found out about her. Fiona, how about you? You grew up in Ireland. Did Julia have much of a presence in Ireland? No, I didn't know who she was. I actually didn't know who she she was until I saw the um, Julie and Julia film with Meryl Streep. And I thought Meryl Streep had just created this extraordinary character. And why wouldn't she? She's fantastic. So I thought, wow, fabulous, 
interesting, amazing choices. This is so extraordinary. And then someone said, no, that's a real person. And then that's how I learned about her and then learned much more about her once um, once I got the script and once we started working on it. Oh, yeah. that's so interesting. What drew you to this project? Well, the writing, first of all, which is just genius and funny and sweet and is explores all of these people in very real situations. I really believe every conversation. That and Judith Jones, uh, when I read about her, looked her up and totally fell in love with this extraordinary woman. I couldn't believe that I wasn't aware of her existence until then. And that was really joyful because learning all the things, reading about her, watching her, all the interviews with her. Judith, you've played a lot of formidable women on television and in film. What interested you in playing Blanche Knopf? For exactly that reason, because she was so formidable. And most people don't even know anything about her. And I'd have to second what Fiona said about the writing, the depth, the substance, the awareness, and the creation of these characters and their relationship, I thought was so powerful and so interesting. Blanche Knopf was married to Alfred in 1919. And he said, then we will create Knopf Publishing. Um, and I know a lot of people say it's Knopf, it's Knopf. I had to go back in and do some ADR to correct the way I was saying it. Nobody knows about Blanche and all that she did to create that company. And Alfred sort of basically pushed her out of the way. And I thought it was time. And they did too, the producers, you know, and the writers, uh, Chris Kaiser and Daniel Goldfarb, they said, these are women that are very important that people don't know a lot about. And it was just like what, what Fiona said about Judith Jones. We don't know about these women. And they were the support around Julia Child. Yeah, Blanche isn't someone closely associated with Julia. Tell us a little bit about where she fits into the Julia Child story. The way they fit in is that Judith was very connected to Julia and felt strongly about Julia's work and what that would do for the world and for Knopf Publishing. And so Blanche pushed that away. She didn't want to have anything to do with it. Blanche was a literary snob. In a, in a lot of ways. Judith, in her intuition and her uh, awareness of Julia and the power of Julia and who Julia was as a person, she was the one that kept saying to Blanche, you have to pay attention, you have to pay attention. So that's how Blanche really fits into the story, but it's only through Judith Jones. I didn't realize she passed away in 1966, so never really even got to see what Julia became and what Knopf yeah. became because of all that Julia brought. Those were two women that listened to their intuition and their instincts. Judith Jones in relation to Julia and Julia in relation to her doing the work that she wanted to do, that she knew and understood. And Blanche only got pieces of that through her relationship with Judith. Well, Fiona, let's talk about this magical creature, Judith Jones. Judith is responsible for two major moments in publishing history. The first involves the diary of Anne Frank when she was a young assistant at Doubleday, which in and of itself is such a remarkable story. Even if she did nothing else, yes. she could have just coasted on that Stop for then. the rest of her career. Can you tell us about yeah. that story? Yeah, I, I love this. I love this. This is one of the first things I learned about her as an assistant for Doubleday in Paris, because she loved Paris. 
and she loved food. She loved French food. And she was and her job was to go through the reject pile and write back to everybody. And, you know, the usual, sorry, whatever, we're not going to do this for you. And she came across Anne Frank's book and that beautiful picture of her that we all know on the cover. And she was really struck by that photograph. And so she started reading and sat there and read the book cover to cover into the dark of night. And finally, when her boss came back, she was in tears. She was obviously hugely moved, like we all have been by that book. And she said, we have to publish that, this book. And her boss said, what, that book by that kid? And she's like, yes. The, one of her many traits that I really admire is her belief in her gut. And she's like Julia, like Blanche. These women, when they believed it and they felt it down there, they were tenacious. There was no taking them away from that point. What made Judith Jones such a visionary? I think with Julia Child's fantastic cookbook, it was something that Judith Jones had been looking for for her whole life. She had always loved cooking food, France. She had gone to France for three weeks and ended up staying for three years. And as she says, this enormous tome landed on her desk, almost an answer to her prayers. There is so much about Judith Jones out there. There are photos, there are videos, there are interviews. There's her own memoir. How did you prepare for playing Judith Jones? I basically did it two ways, which I went through all her, read her memoir, went read other books about her, what she said about herself, what other people said about her. What was really precious to have was the videos uh, of the interviews, because you don't, from the, from the accomplishments that she achieved, you don't get the wit of Judith Jones and the warmth and the interest in other people and the readiness to smile and also the steeliness that's there and the strength. And that's what I found just invaluable because it helped me create a well-rounded person and character. You have a responsibility to perform with respect when it's a real person, especially somebody like this who is so important. Judith, did you bring any particular mannerisms or characteristics to Blanche that you had learned about? We have this uh, wonderful costume designer who made sure that what we were wearing really suited the characters. And so in some way, as soon as I put one of those suits on, I could feel my body change. When I put on those particular shoes, the walk changed in some way. So whether that was Blanche or not, there was something that he was giving me. And I think us, I think Fiona would totally agree that that we were given a way to feel in the in the wardrobe that affected the way we moved and walked. And there's one prop that Blanche has, which is a green pen, the editing pen. That's probably what I would say is that the team helps to create those, the feelings and subsequently the characteristics. Now, Fiona, you had to do a New York accent. And I had no idea you were Irish until wow. I got to know you. Thank you for saying so, that. So well done as a native New Yorker. Congrats on nailing the accent. How did you even start to approach that? Well, luckily, having so many videos of Judith was incredibly helpful. But one of the main things is I, I worked with a, a fantastic um, dialect coach a couple of years ago called Catherine Charlton, who I work with every now and then. One of her main tips with a new accent was to fall asleep listening to it, just very lightly in your ear, because you can pick up the cadence of it and the tone. And so that's one of the things with 
um, that I do now since I've worked with her. I, I fall asleep listening to Judith and I go for walks with the dogs listening to her. And just that of watching her and where the sound is placed in the mouth and how, how open her mouth is and all of those kind of things, how nasal it is, certain words that she uses. It is so subtle the way you do it. And it isn't one of those over-the-top New York accents, which, of course, Judith didn't have. But to capture that is very difficult, to capture oh. the sound and the accent, but also not to have it be over-the-top is just, that's a triple somersault to me. So just have oh, to say. Thanks, ladies. True, honey. So it's true. <laughs> it is true. You only heard it. There were a few words where yeah. you would hear it and you were like, oh, she's a New Yorker. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I think I was, again, Judith, thanks to Judith Jones, because this, that's where I got it. I got it literally from her because of for the videos and watching her on video. And that's so great. So I'm so pleased. Thank you. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot Let's talk about some of your scenes together. In the, um, in the latest episode, Blanche's worst fears have been realized— Judith has crossed from editor to recipe tester and is making all that bread with Paul, played by David Hyde Pierce. Fiona, how was that scene yeah. to shoot? Oh, fabulous. Fabulous and funny and amazing and long and fantastic. And long. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. David, just such a joy. The scene with you two kind of fighting over Updike and whether Judith should go up to Cambridge to help out Julia or stay and have this lunch with Updike. I just thought that was such a brilliant scene. Thank you. That's our first scene together. Well, I mean, you see and hear how warm Fiona is and how lovely. And so just coming to the set, she made me feel incredibly comfortable. You know, when you come and you bring something and then you find that people appreciate it, it always makes the working experience really lovely. And when you have an actor to play opposite, like Fiona, there is this connection. And I believe that the connection between the characters is something and the energy translates through to the audience. And you can't fake that. You have that, you and these two characters, and I feel a very strong connection with Fiona. So we have a chemistry. So that comes across. Well, we have that instantly. I mean, Judith yeah. is such, you are such a beautiful, open, lovely person that I felt the minute I met her, I felt like I knew her forever. And I remember us, you know, giggling together, walking up the stairs in our heels, yeah. you know, talking about our costumes and and getting into it, and it's and it's great because you know, obviously, I know Judith's work and have adored it for years. And then, what what you don't get, obviously, until you're in a scene with someone like Judith or with Judith, is just how how for you she is, you know, and and for the character, for the scene, for the moment, our characters are so connected in many ways, complicated ways too, not always mm. great, happy ways. And there's a real mentor-mentee situation and the slight pulling away. And But 
yes, very exciting. I love all my scenes with Judith. It's a Judith day. Everybody's jumping up and down, the whole crew, not just me. Oh, you're so sweet. Well, oh, it's so it's, true. It's, Everyone's it's, just. It's really a joy to be there. And everything that Fiona has said about me is true of her. So oh. there's this kind of comfort in the way of working that you hold each other in a way that nobody can make a mistake. So mm. everybody gets to try whatever they think of and we all see if it works, but nobody feels judged. To make a terrible pun, do you think Blanche might blanch at the thought of Julia being the most lasting aspect of her legacy? That's a terrible pun. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love a pun, Carrie. I'm on I, your I side. Do. I, I, I do too. I No, I don't. I I believe that Blanche was instructed and guided by Judith Jones' passion. Judith became her eyes, ears, heart. She listened. She began listening to Judith in a way that she had not always in the very beginning. And I think her gratitude toward Judith and her gratitude toward Julia would have definitely changed her mind. Julia Child kept the lights on. I do believe that Blanche came to recognize that and have real gratitude for that and to Judith for helping her change her, really supporting her to change her position about Julia Child. And Fiona, what do you hope viewers take away from the trio of Julia, Blanche, and Judith? It's kind of the things that we have talked about already, that these three women believed in themselves they, they felt it in their gut and they kept going. And I mean, they were all knocked back at different times. It's not been easy. And I think that's something that I really, I, 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 want, I want people to look at and go, it's, it is possible with hard work and determination to, to get where you want to go. But it is hard work and it will be tough and nothing is easy. But also you really see the support that these women not only gave, but got what I get from these three women's story is, is many things, but one of the things is that you don't have to do it on your own, you know? And even if whatever it is that you want to do is so different to what anyone else wants to do, for example, Julia Child with a cooking show sounds completely insane, and she changed the way we know cooking shows, but her, she was supported by this confederacy of women. That is very important to lean on other people and be supported and to support. And also, I mean, look at look at Julia's relationship with Avis, her good friend, and her relationship with Simone Beck. The theme is you, you don't do it alone. These are yeah. women supporting other women and their mm-hmm. passions and what they where they want to go and what they want to do. Even if you're, you know, a stoic stalwart like Blanche, things can you can be impacted on by by other women and other other people. I do think that is the beautiful message of the show. You don't do it alone. You don't. Yeah, no. absolutely. For sure. Yeah. Judith, if Julia was coming to dinner, what would you make and who would you invite? I would test out a vegan recipe on her that I have for tofu with scallions and soy sauce and teriyaki and sesame seeds that's done in a wok. And I would see how she felt about tofu. So I would, I would try that. I certainly 
would not make any of her recipes for her. That would be a really ridiculous mistake. I wouldn't, I mean, as lovely as I know she would be about it, I'll be, mm-mm. And who would you invite? Of course, it would be James Beard. It would be Jacques Papin. Every executive from the Food Network. I would have people like Eleanor Roosevelt and Katanji Brown Jackson and Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Maya Angelou and Henri Cartier-Bresson, the photographer that I think Paul would be very interested in. Dolores Huerta, who was married to Cesar Chavez. Beethoven. Seriously, I could go on and on because her interests were so expansive and so wide ranging. And so were Paul's friends of theirs from the OSS, which eventually became the CIA. There would be this mixture of people from politics and music and art and, you know, heads of museums. So, I mean, I I really could go on. I'm not, I'm stopping. Now that's it. So this would be a giant banquet. You'd have to make a lot of tofu, Judith. I don't think Julia would be so happy about that. If I could have Julia Child, I would want to have Judith Jones and Anne Frank. They would be just uh, to get those yeah. for, for Judith to have her with those two people. And Lovely. if mm. I could have Anne Frank, you know. Yeah. And Judith Jones, if I get my hands on Judith Jones, you know what I mean? Or Julia Child. I just think that that, I just, I would love to see that, those conversations. In one of her, the many things that I listened to or read said that uh, when she used to go up to Cambridge and work on recipes with Julia and Paul, they would work till maybe 11 o'clock in the evening. You know, they were just all such hard workers. And then Julia would go, you'd get off, you know, let's have dinner. And then she she one time she said to uh, Judith, Judith, make a, make something, you know, make some side dish. And Judith was very nervous. She made a little potato dish. And I don't actually know what it is. I need to try and find out what it is. And Julia Child loved it and made Judith feel fantastic. She'd been so nervous making this little potato dish, but she did it well. So I think I'd do that potato dish and find find out what, what a little potato dish at that time was. Maybe it's in one of Judith's books. I'd make that and probably... I don't know, probably maybe some chicken. I'd keep it easy. <laughs> Wouldn't it be fun just to like have everybody over somewhere, yeah. all of us from the show and just everybody cook one of Julia's things? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be just so grand? Yeah, we should do so that. Great? We should make it happen. That sounds like a beautiful thing to do. I'd love that. Yeah. Just lovely. Judith and Fiona, I've loved every scene that you've been in together. And as oh. as an English major and a book nerd, my heart oh. soars every time there's a scene with oh. the two of you. Thank oh. you for bringing these two people to life. Mine too. Yes. Well, thank you. Oh, God. Thank you so much, Carrie. And thanks. It's lovely to have a chat today. Thank you so much to Fiona Glasscott and Judith Light. Next up is Francis Lamb, editor-in-chief of Clarkson Potter, a division of Penguin Random House, known for its cookbooks from the likes of Ina Garten and Tony Tipton Martin, who, in 2021, received the Julia Child Award from the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. Also, some of you might recognize Francis's voice from The Splendid Table, a popular radio program about cooking from American public media. Let's welcome Francis to Dishing on Julia. Hi, Francis. Hey, Carrie. How are you? I'm so happy to be here. Francis, would love to know, when did you first learn about Julia Child? 
I have to tell you, I can't like pin the moment. I didn't have like that relationship with Julia where I was like, and then like this magical omelet fell on the stove and I couldn't believe what I was seeing on TV or, you know, the, the chickens were lined up by swords. Like what? I didn't really have that, but I do remember liking watching food TV when I was a kid. And when I was a kid, it was before the Food Network was around. So it was really mostly on public television, episodes of great chefs and and things like that. And, you know, the galloping gourmet and, you know, the frugal gourmet and, 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 and all those folks. And I remember seeing like reruns of Julia Child shows. And, you know, so she was in that kind of mix for me. I didn't like gravitate to her specifically, but over time, like as an adult and then as a professional in, in the food world and food media, like I really, you know, started to understand the incredible impact she had. And also like what a genuinely fascinating person and seemingly like a genuinely good person. So like it's hard to hit. <laughs> it's hard to hit that trifecta these days. So um, she she certainly like looms large in my mind now. Did you ever meet Julia or her editor, Judith Jones? I never met Julia. I did have the chance to interview Judith. Oh, um, you did? I'm so jealous. Yeah, and she was amazing. I mean, she was towards the end of her life. I think she passed away maybe not more than really a couple years after I had a chance to speak with her. But it was amazing. And Judith Jones, like for me as a cookbook editor, you know, certainly for me as like a, just a person who loves food and grew up in America and, you know, reads and speaks English. Um, I thought you were going to say reads and speaks food. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, but yeah. What you do? Ju- Judith, I mean, I think, I mean, look, we, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, but I don't think there's a single person you can point to in American culture who did more to popularize so many cuisines from around the globe and make accessible in a new way to people who didn't know about those cuisines and didn't know about those cultures in the Jewish Jones. Anyway, I was writing an article about, you know, someone who had been one of her um, authors, Edna Lewis, who was a, another like, giant of American gastronomy. Um, and Judith had been her editor and in a lot of ways wasn't just her editor, but was her, was really her partner in writing. Tell me what Judith was like. I mean, I caught her in a very um, reflective mode, and it was lovely to hear her tell stories. And, you know, some of these stories I'd heard her tell sitting on panels and, and, you know, and stuff like that. But it was so wonderful to, I mean, I knew that she was in her kitchen in Vermont when I called her. And like I said, she was older, but she was, she definitely had her, her mind. Mm -hmm. And she's famously can be sharp, can be you know, sort of cutting and witty. And so I was a little intimidated. And, you know, just by that reputation and by the fact that, like, oh, she is this giant in publishing in this industry that I'm, like, like I feel like a pretender in, right? And and she was just so warm and wonderful to talk with. And, yeah, I just I just cherish it. I, like, I have the recording on my phone. Tell us what your job at Clarkson Potter entails. What does it mean to be editor-in-chief? Clarkson Potter is a publisher of what we call illustrated nonfiction, which is a very sexy term of art in publishing. In reality, what that means for us is we're we're known a lot for our cookbooks mm-hmm. because they are nonfiction and they're illustrated, and we make beautiful objects. And like that's part of our sort of that's part of our steez, right? Like we're really into the object making. We also do lots of non cookbook things as well, but we're really um, we're really known for making these like objecty type books and cookbooks are a huge part of that. And before I was editor in chief, I was editor at large for many years, which is a really fancy way of saying part-time employee. <laughs> so I'm a little bit of a dilettante, but I came to publishing. Um... No one has ever called you a dilettante, Francis, <laughs> except yourself. Can you name drop a few of your authors? <laughs> sure. Uh, a few of my authors are uh, Tony Tipton Martin, 
Chrissy Teigen, Dave Chang, Christina Tozzi, Carla Lolly Music. You know, I actually do still do my own books. So I have my relationship with my authors and, you know, I'll get on a call with someone at hopefully during working hours, but sometimes not always. And we'll just talk about your recipe list or what is the story you really want to tell here? Or what's the purpose of this book? Like, it's one thing to say, here's a book of a hundred of my recipes, but what's the story that the recipes will come together to tell, you know, and like draw that stuff out. The pleasure and privilege I get as editor-in-chief is really to work with our team of editors as well and help them problem solve and help them think about, well, what's going on with you know, this book or this relationship that I'm stuck on or, hey, like, let's put our heads together and really think of what are the books we want to publish in the future? Who are the authors we want to publish in the future? How do we, how do we go after those authors or how do we, you know, cultivate those authors? And really it's sort of like top to bottom. How do we think of ourselves as a publisher and what kind of mark do we want to make in the world? Can you tell us a little bit about how the cookbook landscape is changing? I'll say for my part at Clarkson Potter, before I was editor-in-chief, when the editor-in-chief was a woman named Doris Cooper, we had concerted conversations about like, hey, like we really need to look at the representation on our list. And we started looking at our list and like, you know, what what identities were represented, what marginalized identities were there. And like we thought we love all of our authors, we love all of our books, we love our list, but we're not doing a great job of of that. And so we had like actively sought to do better there. And it's not a matter of, hey, let's just start plugging people in and, you know, patting ourselves on the back. It's really a matter of understanding that, oh, to do a good job, like your definition of what a good job is changes, right? Because doing a good job doesn't just mean, oh, hey, let's just publish nice books. It's thinking more deeply about, well, what are we doing in the world? If we're in the, in the business of publishing, you're doing two things at once all the time, right? You're reflecting your society, but you're also trying to push conversations forward in your society. That's the purpose of creating culture, because otherwise, what the hell else are you doing? Go make car tires. You're going to make more money. Really, to do better work is to do better business, too, right? Like, we really started to have a better understanding of that. And so I do think you're seeing more, like, really exciting books by authors that, like, frankly, would not have had a super easy time being published even five years ago. And we're seeing a wider array of stories. It's not only the right thing to do, but like if you're looking at it from like a cynical business point of view, like it's a better business move because you're actually opening up more stories to your audience and you're opening up more audiences to your stories, right? That's the other key part. Certainly one way I think cookbooks have changed a lot since Julia's day is that they have become much more visual and they have become much more objecty. And part of it is just because, look, at some point, like if you just want a recipe for something to make on Tuesday night or you just have like, you know, a pack of chicken breast and you need to know what to do with it, you can just Google it. Like, there's actually no reason to go to a shelf. There's certainly no reason to go to a bookstore. We in the cookbook publishing industry realize, like, oh, we have to make beautiful objects that people want to own, that really want to be proud to have in their home. You know, they want to have proud to have on their shelf, proud to have on their on their coffee table and or at their bedside table, frankly. And, you know, we want people to really, like, live with their books and you, and have a different experience than if you just, like, Put up your phone and, and Google, you know, chicken breast and put it down on your counter and start cooking from that. So they have changed over time, but especially, I think, in the last um, 10 years. In your opinion, Francis, what makes a great cookbook in the year 2022? I really think cookbooks should tell a story. For a long time, cookbooks were manuals, right? For a long time, cookbooks were, in some cases, or in many cases, for many, many decades, if not centuries, they were literally manuals for your for your household help. They weren't for the head of the household or the lady of the house to read or whatever, right? They were like instruction manuals. 
for me, what I think a cookbook offers is the opportunity to tell a story. I'm like, I'm so driven by stories. It's to tell a story either about the author's life or people they know or a community or a culture that they're a part of or of a specific place. It doesn't really matter. But tell me a story and let the food give me a different, deeper, more like 3D way into that story. Let's talk about Judith Jones and her legacy. Judith is remarkable for so many reasons, as we've covered. I'd love to know what you admire most about Judith and her career. This is a woman who published The Diary of Anne Frank, for God's sake. She, like, rescued from the slush pile. Like, she literally had at her job, there was this book called The Diary of Anne Frank that was, like, in the pile of, like, proposals that came in that they're just going to, like, you know, throw in the landfill. And she's and like, she was an assistant. Yeah. And she was like, that looks interesting. And she picked it up and read it and said, we have to publish this. Like, as an assistant, went to the publisher and said, we have to publish this. And that's how The Diary of Anne Frank became published. That's history changing, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's basically, like, more than you could ever ask for out of a life. And... Like, that was a start of her career. (laughs) At a time, especially when publishing was definitely, like, let's call it a very traditional industry, an industry very built on personalities and primarily personalities of powerful men, powerful white men, that whole structure was based on this idea that, oh, we are educated, we're elite, we know what you should be reading, you know, we're the arbiters of what's great literature, we are the makers of great literature. You know, like, that's the whole vibe, right? And, like, Judith Jones shows up and says... We should publish more cookbooks. And these are people who are like, are you kidding me? Like, And we see that in the show, where yeah. they make fun of Judith in an earlier episode for abandoning John Updike, another one of her yeah. great authors, <laughs> yeah. in favor of Julia Child. Yeah, They're like, how could you run up to Cambridge to work with this woman who wants to be on a, t- a cooking TV show and just blow off John Updike? Yeah, like it was like unfathomable. Like, why you'd want to do that. And a little bit, it was kind of like, okay, little girl, do your thing. Sure. Cute, cute. Like, that's kind of the patronizing attitude people had, I think, towards her idea at first. But then she would publish Julia, right? And then she would publish Mother Joffrey. One thing that she did throughout her career that I think was so fascinating, and especially in, like, the 1960s, 70s, you know, 80s and 90s version of it was she did so much to broaden the sense of what American food could be. When American food was still set in its very, like, white bread way and, like, the higher end was, like, looking towards France, the person who was so, like, personally responsible for solidifying that idea of, like, French food, right, in America was also the person who published Mother Joffrey, like, probably the seminal cookbook writer on Indian cuisine in the English language. Um, Invitation to Indian Cooking was her first book and published Edna Lewis, you know, has taught us more like taught us so much about the dignity and the beauty of Southern food and the grace of Southern food, and in particular Black Southern food. God, who else? Claudia Rodin, who is like the great voice on Middle Eastern food. Like Judith Jones published all these people, and every one of those people basically like started the story in the English language of those cuisines in America. Yes, there were Middle Eastern people cooking their food in America, and they were Americans. There were obviously Black people cooking Black American food, obviously Indian American people cooking Indian food. But Judith Jones was the person who brought forth these seminal voices in English and broadened millions of English-speaking Americans' ideas of what food around the world and what food in America could be. I want to see all those authors as characters on Julia one day. Wouldn't that be fun? It'd be amazing. I've totally thought, like, like the Julia Jones show would be like the Super Friends, right? It'd be like like the Justice League. It's like, oh, here comes Mador. Oh, my gosh, I would love that. Let's pitch that to the 
to the HBO Max <laughs> folks. Over the years, we've obviously seen a lot of magazine and newspaper editors portrayed in TV and movies, but I can't remember ever seeing a cookbook editor. Have you ever seen a cookbook editor on TV before um, this? No, it's not a very sexy job. It's hard to make a. It's hard to make a. It's a sexy job today. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Was it fun seeing one of your own portrayed on TV? It was, although I have to say that's not how we work anymore. <laughs> <laughs> one thing did ring very true, which was, "Oh, Judith is going to spend her vacation up here working on the bread chapter." I'm like, "Ah, oh, that sounds familiar." Yeah. <laughs> Wait, because that's happened or no? I mean, how many vacations I've spent like just sitting in the corner on my laptop trying to... (laughs) It's hard to actually make TV out of what we do most of our jobs, which is just sit in front of a computer and like, you know, or be on a phone call. But I do think um, things were different then. It's not all lunch with Updike and lobsters with Julia Child. It's not all lunch with Updike. But but Judith was very hands-on. And I think that that was a testament to her and her curiosity and her desire to make books that really change people's lives. Maybe one thing to be like, oh, this is a great idea. I'll buy this book. I'll publish it, whatever. But she cared. She really wanted people. Like she was, she loved to cook and she wanted, she loved learning to cook. And she understood that that's what she wanted to put out in the world for her audience, right? So she would go and cook with Julia Child. She, they would go and cook together for days and sometimes weeks on end, cooking all day until like 10, 11 at night. And then, all of a sudden, they would just like yep, clear the table. Paul would go get a tablecloth, put it down. He'd start making a drink. Julie would go make dinner, and they would have dinner at like eleven thirty, and you know, be drunk and asleep by two. And Judith would say she would wake up at six o'clock to the sound of Paul and Julie exercising, um, which you can actually kind of see in the sh- in the in the episode. Judith was very invested in that book, probably because she really had to sell it to Kanoff. Yeah. To get them to publish it. So yeah. now it really was in her best interest for there to be a successful follow-up, for the first one to be as successful sure. as possible. Yeah. I mean, she was making her name on this as well. And that's, I mean, that's a definite reality for us as editors. Like, you know, we we live and die by our lists, as we call them. All right, Francis, final question. If Julia and Judith were coming to dinner, what would you make and who would you invite? It's funny because it's something I, I truly whip together in 20 minutes um, when I have nothing else going on at home. But I would make them Chinese stir-fried tomatoes and eggs. Very home-style dish. It's literally like you whip up eggs in a bowl, a little salt. Sometimes I splash in some um, chassing wine. Scramble them in a super hot pan with a lot of oil before they're fully cooked. Scoop that into a bowl. And then I basically, if it's in if it's in summer, I'll slice tomatoes. And in winter, I'll just like crack open a can of tomatoes and you just make a very simple tomato sauce with ginger, garlic, oil, get those sizzling, add the tomatoes, season with salt, a little bit of sugar, a little bit of cornstarch slurry, just to thicken it up and ketchup actually. And then tip the eggs back in just to finish it. And, you know, it's done in literally 10 minutes tops in the pan. Uh, and I serve that with a whole bunch of white rice. And it's like such a comfort food and such a home food. And I think that even though maybe maybe because Judith and Julia had access to, you know, the most wonderful foods in the world. I think they really had in their heart, like, a real love of home and the sense of home that comes from home cooking. So I I think I would just serve them that. My stomach has been grumbling through this whole interview. (laughs) Just made it worse. And who would you invite? I'd love to have Edna there. Miss Lewis. I'd love to have Miss Lewis there. Francis, that's amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for all the beautiful cookbooks you've helped birth. 
Oh, thank you. Put into this world, and uh, it's good to see you. It's so great to see you. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this episode of Dishing on Julia, the official companion podcast of Julia, now streaming on HBO Max. Dishing on Julia is produced by Cherry Bomb Media. Thank you to the Cherry Bomb team, including executive producers Catherine Baker and Audrey Payne, special projects editor Donna Yen, associate producer Jenna Sadu, and editorial assistant Krista White. I'm your host, Carrie Diamond. Special thanks to Stephen Toll and the team at City Vox for the audio production. Check back as we dish on the latest episode of Julia and chat with our cast and crew and special industry guests. To Julia. To us. Hacks is coming back and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hack Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max.